Well, good morning, everyone. At our church, we meet in the afternoons at this point because we don't have enough room in our church to gather. And so I keep on trying to train myself to say good afternoon, but now I can get back in the habit of saying good morning. It's uh, so good to be here this morning. This is the first time I've actually been here in, in the flesh, in person. Uh, we've watched uh, with, with praying eyes and with, with interest all the events that have happened here at Grace Life Church over the past you know, six, eight months um, since this has been going on. James and I, we, we connected probably back September, August last year and uh, walked much of this journey together. Although, thank you guys, we're, we're the tip of the spear here in, in Edmonton. And so, so very thankful. And you have uh, many brothers and sisters in Calgary at Fairview Baptist Church. And I, I, I send with them uh, just the warmest greetings. And it's, it's so, such a privilege that we have Christ in common, we have commitments to, to follow him and to gather together in worship and adoration to him. And so uh, you have a family of faith down in Calgary who prays for you. And, and it's just a, when, anytime we're together physically, uh, we're going to have such a bond together. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the many hardships that I know you experienced and, and especially James experienced and that through those times of hardships that God use that to, to bless you all in, in so many different ways. I know you probably all have stories of how God has worked in your life individually and together as a church over these past number of months. And we've been so blessed down in Calgary just to see God magnified through you. Uh, we've been blessed through how the gospel has gone forth from you with such power. Uh, we've been blessed by, by the many interviews uh, that happened uh, just the, the preaching of God's word from this pulpit, just the witness of the gathering Sunday after Sunday, uh, whether that was threats of enforcement, whether that was threats of imprisonment, whether that was fences that were surrounding your building, that you continue to gather, heralding the Lordship of Christ and his body that he laid down his life for. So I'm so thankful that we could able to, to come and worship together with you and, and to see that take place. I'm convinced that uh, there are many people in Canada who wish they were living in Alberta right now. And I'm convinced that our, our province is as free as it is because of your witness here at Grace Life Church and because of other churches in this province who have stood up and, and have caused so much turmoil and, and problems for our leaders that I think at this point they're afraid. They, they know exactly what you will do and they'll know what we'll do. And so I'm, I'm so thankful that this has not only um, seen freedom here to be able to gather here this morning, but also the freedom for so many others in our province. Just know that your light is shining brightly in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And so for that, I give thanks and rejoice. I'm so thankful for you, James, and, and for Jacob, and how the two of you have, have led this congregation and how you have responded to Christ-like manner through all these hardships and trials. I was mentioning it to Jacob this morning, just when, when you were in jail and Jacob coming here and preaching from this pulpit week in and week out because Christ is worthy, it was, that puts steel in your spine when you see that. That puts such, such courage in you that you want to serve Christ. And I know that was, uh, was a moment in our congregation when you went to jail and it was a time when we're like, okay, enough, enough with the games. We need to gather and we need to worship Christ and do it publicly and do it with courage 
and, and do it alongside our brothers and sisters here at Grace Life. So I thank you for that. I know that you guys are men and weak men like myself, but God has used you through the season to do such dramatic things for the church here uh, in our province and this around the world. And I'm, I'm astounded by, by the blessings that God has bestowed upon you as a church and upon the church in general through these past number of months. So after saying all, all of that and, and just, just encouraging you all in, in the witness and the salt and the light that you have been, we all know that the, the foundation of that has been Christ, has been Christ's body, the church that he purchased with his own blood. It has been for his glory. It has been for his lordship, for his honor, for obedience to his commands and seeking to be faithful to him. And so Christ receives all the honor and the glory and praise for him building his church. And so this morning here, I want to encourage you and, and to preach from a text in, in 1 Corinthians 2.2 when Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 2.2. And I want to stir you up by way of reminder as we consider that text. But the blessedness of Christ and him crucified. Let me just begin with a word of prayer before we look at God's word together. Oh God, I am thankful for Christ. I am thankful for who he is and what he has done. I'm thankful for the word and how you've gifted us with your word and you gifted us with your spirits that we might know Christ and behold him. And God, I pray that as the word is open here this morning, Oh, that Christ would be honored and magnified and that our hearts would be further enlarged in love towards our Lord Jesus. God, we pray that you would continue to build your church as you have promised to do. So descend upon us now in a special way through the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 2, 2 this morning. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as we consider this verse here this morning, what we're going to do is, is first look at, you know, what does this mean? What, is this, what, is he, what does Paul mean when he talks about this, determining to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus and him crucified? And then we're going to look at, at, at what does that look like? You know, when we understand what it means to preach Christ and have Christ the center, then what does that look like in a church? What does it look like in our lives to have Christ at the center and determining to have Christ at the center? And so first, what does it mean when he writes, I decided or I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Now we can look at this and say, well, there's, a, there's obviously a very, very simple way to look at this text. When Paul says, there's, there's nothing else I want to talk about except Jesus and him crucified. And you can imagine him preaching at Corinth and then someone coming after him after his service, after he has a chance to preach the gospel. And they say, Paul, you know, what about, what about my marriage? And, and what about parenting my children? And Paul's like, no, no, only Christ and him crucified. You know, or, or someone asking Paul, what about paying taxes to Caesar? Paul, Paul, any recommendations for, for health mandates for a pandemic? And he's like, sorry, can't, talk, can't go there. Only Christ and him crucified. Now, we know that's, that's an overly simplistic way to look at this text because 
What Paul deals with in his letter to the Corinthians is he's dealing with how to regard pastors or ministers of the gospel. He talks about divisions in the church. He talks about lawsuits among believers. He talks about sexual immorality. He, he talks about the resurrection and about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about head coverings. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about all these things, collecting funds to give to the, the poor believers in Jerusalem. And so when he says here that he just has decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it is not as if he's afraid to talk about the other issues that that congregation is facing. We must account for what he actually taught the church at Corinth. And there's some who even in the events of the past month or the past, past year have appealed to texts like this by saying, I can't speak into this issue. That the church is only about the gospel, only about Jesus, him crucified. And we're not going to get into commenting on a pandemic or health orders. We'll just leave that to the medical experts. That's not what Paul is meaning here. And so what does, he, what does he mean then when he says that he has decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? To understand what he means by this, it's important to understand the context that he is ministering in. He's, he's ministering in Corinth, you know, a city not too far from Athens, and philosophy was big in that day. We, we, we've had men who have just gone before them like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and so and so we have, we have these philosophies. We have Epicureanism and Stoicism and, and these different teachings where, where a teacher would come into town and, and be a teacher of one of these philosophies and people would pay to go and, and hear him speak and be very eloquent and very wise and they'd give him insights into how to live their lives and, and, and beyond and who God is or, or who we are as human beings. And so philosophy was big and, and philosophy comes from the from the Greek word philo, which means love, and then, then Sophia, wisdom. So a love of wisdom. And the, these people loved wisdom. They loved these philosophies, these teachings. And they took pride that the center of learning was, was coming from them and, and influencing the whole world. And so what Paul is getting at here is that he's not coming here to, to peddle just another philosophy. He's not coming here just to receive a paycheck for his eloquent speech He's not coming here to fill their minds with nuggets about, about how they might live better in their lives. He came as a herald of God Almighty and he came to proclaim Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead. I want to show you this from the text. Look at me in verse 17 in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes there, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, so, so Paul is saying he came to preach the gospel. He came to preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't come like those philosophers with words of eloquent wisdom, lest he says the cross of Christ, the gospel, the message of Christ crucified is emptied of its power. He's not just one of many teachers that they're hearing. He comes as a herald from God proclaiming the gospel, the cross of Christ, and he separates himself from the philosophers of his day. If you look at the text, it continues in verse 18 in the first chapter. 
He says, for the word of the cross, speaking of the gospel, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so the wisdom of this world seems, seems right in the eyes of man, and the wisdom of God, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ seems folly to man. But Paul says, I'm not here just to preach another wisdom that seems good to mankind, but rather I've come here to preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems foolishness to the world, but the world is perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he continues, look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What Paul is saying here is that his message is, is different, distinct from these philosophers. Paul's message comes from God himself. It sounds foolish to the world, but it is the power of God. And in fact, no scribe, no debater, uh, no wise person in the world can stand before God and proclaim to be wise. Rather, God it will show that they are foolish because God has chosen in his wisdom to save the world through the folly of what Paul is preaching, through the folly of the gospel, that we are reconciled to God through a crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Continues in verse 22 through 25. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is is stronger than men. So when Paul says in the second verse of 1 Corinthians 2 that he determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he says, I'm not here as another philosopher, another sophist, not here as a, as a peddler of man's wisdom. I am here as a herald from God. I am proclaiming to you the wisdom of God and the power of God. Yes, Greeks see it as foolish. To a it's a stumbling block to Jews but it is God's wisdom and it is God's power. It's contrast to man's thoughts and ideas. And so when Paul says he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ him crucified, he's determined not to let any of that man-centered wisdom get in the way of that church growing in faithfulness and obedience to God. And the word of the cross, this Jesus and him crucified, the gospel, all these different words used to speak about who Jesus is and what he has done. And Paul's like, the wisdom of this world can't compare with that. And isn't that true? That nothing can compare with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because Paul there is heralding what has been heralded since his day and what Christ is using to build his church today that we are creatures made by Almighty God. And God in his goodness, he has made this world and everything in it, he has made us, 
And we look in the world today and we see such beauty. We, we look at rivers and streams and waterfalls. We look at the st stars in the night sky. We look at the mountains and the vast plains and we praise God. It doesn't matter what education you have. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what your skin color is or your background. Everyone looks at God's creation and is breathless at its wisdom, at its power, at its beauty. And God has planted that in our heart so that we might give him honor and praise. And so we look at this world and we see the beauty of this world testifying to God's goodness. But we also look at the world and see brokenness in this world. We see brokenness in our own hearts. We see wars and we see rape and we see murder. You just read, read the headlines in, in any newspaper and your heart begins to break because our world is so broken. And just like the Bible talks about the beauty of our world testifying to God's goodness and the goodness of our creator, well, the brokenness of the world, God's word testifies to the sinfulness of mankind. That this world is broken because we as God's creatures have rebelled against that good creator. And our world thinks that the world is broken because of what's out there. And the solution is what's in here. But we know from God's word is that the world is broken because of what's in here. And the solution must come from out there. And the solution is God sent his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says that he came the just for the unjust. And he died the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, that he might reconcile us to God. Jesus came on a rescue mission. And we need rescue, we need salvation, we need deliverance. And so Jesus came into his creation, he came in history, it was witnessed by hundreds of people, both his death and both his resurrection. Our faith does not rest, rest in myth or legend or fable, it is history, what God has done. And so Paul here is saying, I am proclaiming to you the gospel, the good news of what God has done in history to the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what I want you to know. It, it all centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This explains the beauty and the brokenness in the world. This explains your need for salvation. And this is your only way that you can be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus. It also would have included our response to the Lord Jesus. Our response to a holy God that we're sinners and that the solution is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the call? Repent and believe the gospel turn from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him with your life and with your death. We're promised the forgiveness of sins. We're promised eternal life. We're promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. We're promised that we will be made a new creature. And the evidence of that, that new birth or being born again is that we have new desires now. Desires to love God and to serve him. Desires to read his word. Desires to worship with other fellow believers. Desires to pray. Desires to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is included in what, Je what Paul says here in that he determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wants you to know the gospel and then the response to that gospel and how that changes everything. The Bible talks about conversion, about believing upon Christ as a, as a new birth, as a new creation, 
as a regeneration, a new genesis, a new beginning, new life. And when that happens, it changes everything. It changes everything for you as an individual. It changes for your family. It changes for your church. And so all those other issues that Paul begins to address about sexual immorality, about divisions, about head coverings in the Lord's Supper, about the return of Christ, all of that flows from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ is at the center and he is Lord, he is Lord over everything. And so all of life is affected because of Jesus and him crucified. So Paul's not take, seeking to take what is already in your life and, and add Jesus to the, to the side of it or add another philosophy so you have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and you have Jesus and his teachings. No, nothing except Jesus and him crucified and from that central location of Jesus as Lord and Savior, now everything comes into orbit around Jesus. And what he gets into here in the second chapter is what that looks like. Okay, this is what that text means when Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. I want you to know the gospel and see how that changes everything. This is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. And now we're gonna look at what that looks like in the life of an individual, and especially the life of a church. So look at me in... 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to read the first five verses in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What we see in these five verses is Paul explaining, the scripture is explaining for us what it looks like to be determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He talks about what he avoided what he was determined not to do in that first verse. And then he talks about what he's determined to do. And then finally he says, so that, here's the big reason, this is what I'm looking for, because I'm determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's those things we're gonna look at in more detail. Look what he says in the very first verse, in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul is saying here he's already contrasted his message as being different than just another philosophy. And what he says here is that he did not come proclaiming to you this testimony of God, this revelation of God, the gospel. He did not come to you proclaiming that with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't use their form and their style, nor did he proclaim their message. The gospel is altogether different than worldly wisdom. And so what Paul is saying here in these verses, when he talks about being determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he says, I did not use their message and I did not use their method. We're going to look at not using the world's method first, and then we'll talk about not using the world's message. 
But those are the two big things that Paul says, if Christ is going to be at the center, then I refuse to use their method and I refuse to use their message. Now, we're in danger today of using the world's method in an effort to seek to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you've likely heard from the world today that preaching has come out of style. You preach too long. You you gotta make it shorter. You're gonna lose people's attention. And and when when you're preaching, less, less authoritative, more conversational, more dialogue. People like dialogue. More, more in a sense of, of humility, as, as in you don't know, and, and share about your struggles and your problems and, and how you don't know. And people will connect with you and relate with you and, and you'll win them with that method. Maybe jettison preaching altogether and just have drama or, or just music and, and that will be a way to connect with the people. We have a push today that maybe it's your clothing choice that will be working. Maybe a music that will, that will match what people are hearing on the radio and, and that will be the way, the method to teach them Christ. We see today a professionalization of, of ministry and of churches and of pastors because, well, that is successful and it's working in the world and so pastors are CEOs today. Pastors are, are faith leaders. Pastors are... Not you, James. (laughs) Pastors are communicators, right? They're influencers. They're not theologians. They're not holy men who know God and behold him in his word and then stand behind this pulpit and declare what they've seen. That's the world's methods or what the world wants. And I'm not arguing here that We never contextualize the gospel for a certain time in a certain culture, but so often contextualization is another word for compromise. By just taking all the world's methods and and selling them as Christianity. Then it becomes another man-made teaching that will come and go like all the rest. Paul says, I didn't come here proclaiming to you the testimony of God with that lofty speech and wisdom like those other philosophers. I didn't do it their way. I didn't use their methods. He also argues here that he doesn't use their message. Not only does he not use the world's method, he doesn't use the world's message. He comes here proclaiming the testimony of God, not not the ideas of men. But this is direct revelation of God. This is God's testimony. This is God's witness of himself. This is God's own revelation. But the danger lies today by not only taking the world's method, but taking the world's message and then repackaging it and then selling that as Christianity. It's like you take the world's message and you you hollow out the core and you slide in Christ and then you sell it as Christianity. And we see it all the time today. You know, we have the, the constant mantra to stay home and stay safe and do all of these things and be a good citizen And what do Christians do? They grab all of that. They repackage it with love your neighbor, which is true, which is what God calls us to do. And they say, this is the Christian thing to do. Love your neighbor. 
the, the message is indistinguishable, but, but the core, they say, is Christ-centered and God-honoring. We see it in other areas, not just in relation to our health. We see it in areas like intersectionality or critical race theory or all the social issues today. We see the church proclaiming the same message of justice that the world proclaims, but yet in, in the center, they argue, is Christ and the gospel. Oh, it looks the same on the outside, but, but it's the inside that counts. But it's the world's message, not the testimony of God. Paul rejected this kind of repackaging of the world's message, which would see Jesus as just another philosophy and just another philosopher. The temptation for us is to want to be relevant today, but when we take the world's method and the world's message, we are irrelevant. And that clamoring for relevancy just makes them irrelevant. And think about it. There is a, a dichotomy between the world's message and the world's wisdom and what the Bible says. We've heard over and over again about staying home and staying safe. And Jesus says, come and die. Come and die. That's the message of the gospel, right? If you want to follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, you know, bring your instrument of execution with you and follow me. Lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. That's the Christian call. So different than the message of safety we hear in the world today. I'm tired, and I'm sure you are well as well, of the church seeking to take the world's method and messaging and repackaging it and saying this is Christianity. They use the language, but its substance is worldly and man-centered. And so we must be mindful of this. We, we can't just be lagging behind the world like, like one step behind them. As we slip further and further away from God's word, we must be tethered to Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul says, I have nothing to do with their man-made wisdom and nothing to do with their man-made methods. I reject that because I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we're never tempted to use the world's method or message. Remember this verse, and then remember what we have. We have, as Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of glory. We have him sitting on the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us, he prays for us, he has given us his holy word, he has given us his Holy Spirit. Do we need the man's method or messages? Of course not. We need to remember what we have and, and who we serve. We have the testimony of God, God's witness here in his word. So Paul says he was determined not to fall into that category. And then we get into verse two where he has determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so you notice that in the verse verse when he says, he came to you not proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then he begins the second verse with the word for. Okay, the reason why he rejected that is because he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't want the gospel diluted, mixed, confused, repackaged, repurposed. He purposely avoided that so that Christ and the gospel will be clear. 
similar to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what he says there, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The testimony of God is to be proclaimed, heralded, preached, and that is liberating as Christians and as ministers of the gospel, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to be novel. We don't need to, to be inventors. We don't need to be dynamic communicators. We are to take the word of God and then faithfully make it known without tampering or any cunning, any bait and switch. We go forward and say, thus says the Lord. And then look at the third verse. He said, I'm, and I, when I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Here's something further about Paul's method. It wasn't eloquent like the world's. And so what he, what he argues for here when he talks about the supremacy of Christ in the gospel, is he say, I, I didn't use the world's method or message, but rather I used God's message and God's method. And what's God's method to proclaim the gospel? God's method is to use weak men to herald the gospel forth and say, thus says the Lord. Look at verse 21 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Therefore, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's through this foolish message, foolish in the eyes of the world, but this foolish message that is preached, that is proclaimed, that is heralded, that is the testimony of God, thus says the Lord, it is through that that God is using to save sinners. The Old Testament prophets were preachers. Jesus was a preacher. In Romans 10, it says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call upon him unless they believe? And how are they going to believe unless they understand and, and hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? And how is someone going to preach to them unless they are sent? Then he quotes Isaiah and says, blessed are those who preach the good news. This is God's pattern for granting faith and repentance by using preachers who would go and simply declare and say, thus says the Lord, here's the testimony of God. Repent and believe. That's what God is using to build his church. The Reformation, when we saw a change in the whole landscape of the, of the world, was a revival in preaching. Those men that we regard as heroes of the faith they were theologians and they were filled with the Spirit and they knew his word and they were preachers. John Knox, who had to flee his own country for his own safety, who spent more than a year on, on, on a ship, as a, as a, rowing in a galley ship as a, as a slave because he was arrested, went back to his own country in fear of death and imprisonment and he prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And he preached and that country was changed. He proclaimed the testimony of God. 
It was the same in the Great Awakening. You have young men like George Whitfield travel around and preach about the new birth and the world was transformed. And what we've seen in these past number of months, we have seen the lordship of Christ come into focus. We've seen it heralded from this pulpit, from other pulpits around our country and around the world. And that has sent shockwaves into this world because a testimony of God has gone forth. God uses the preaching of his word through weak and fearful, trembling men. That's what he says here in verse three. Paul says, I came to you in weakness and in fear in much trembling. He uses weak men, not, not sinful men, holy men, men who know the word, but weak in the eyes of the world. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about his weakness, and in fact, he says he'll boast in his weaknesses because Christ is glorified through them. He says there, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God doesn't use very often the nobility, the famous, the well-educated, you know, the big, big names of society. He uses weak men who are faithful to proclaim his word that are willing to endure hardships and turmoil, persecution. And God uses that weakness to get the gospel forth. And we've seen it. We've seen it. Through the imprisonment. Through, through the, the imprisonment of the church. That has caused the gospel to go forth in a way through that weakness, in a way that we could never have fathomed or imagined. And so the government has all the power, but yet the gospel went forth with such power through that time. Like your pastors, I know the weakness of coming into a Sunday with rising pressures, the weakness of being in a jail cell, the weakness of being away from your family and your church family and not knowing what is going to happen. And yet God would use that weakness to advance the gospel and to build his church. And we praise God for that. And so Paul boasts in his weakness. And so he uses God's method. Weak men who are faithful and courageous to proclaim the testimony of God. And he uses God's message. A rejection of the world's method, rejection of the world's message, using God's method, and then using God's message. He says in verse two, he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was all about Jesus, all about who he is, all about his work as a crucified savior and risen again three days later. And this is the task of a believer, to take God's message and embrace it in our own heart so that all of our lives revolves around Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And this is the task of the church, to have Jesus at the center. And everything revolves around Jesus, around who he is and what he has done. And this past season, I've been so encouraged because the worthiness of Christ and what he has done has been exalted. Christ, his name has gone forth as worthy. His bride, the church, 
has been brought into the mind's eye of so many and it is the importance of his body has been brought home to our own hearts through this time. Christ has been honored and he has been obeyed. He is deemed worthy of our suffering. He is deemed worthy of the loss of reputation. He's worthy of our praise, of our adoration. This is what Paul's desire here is to take God's message of the worthiness of Christ and to make him known. Now I know in this time, some have thought that God's message has been obscured by your stand as a church. That the stand has been political and not Christ-centered. That the message resounding from this pulpit at its core is a political message and not the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Well, in some regards, Paul is right when he writes in 1 Corinthians 4 that it means little to him that he be judged by anybody in any human court. He'll be judged by God on that day. But I know, and you know, and many know, that it has been Jesus Christ and him crucified that is at the center of all that has gone on these past number of months that it has been his bride for which he purchased with his own blood, his church that he calls to gather together to worship him in obedience and in reverence and devotion for who he is and what he has done. It is that, that nothing can hinder us from that goal. And so it has been about Christ, not politics. In fact, I believe it is those who seek to curry favor with the world and do what the world wants those are being political because that's what politicians do. They take the temperature, what people want, and then try to, try to deliver on that for their own sake. But to go against the grain, to go against what everyone is saying, to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not good politics. But that's saying Jesus and the gospel is worthy. Some would also charge what's going on here is the message is not Christ-centered, but the message is really anti-science and anti-government. And that's why all these people are gathering, a bunch of freedom fighters who hate science and hate the government. Got a few hands. <laughs> when Paul says he decided nothing among you except Jesus Christ and crucified, we recognize that science, government, all of life, all of it comes under the authority and the lordship of Christ. And so to navigate this past season the way that you did is not anti-science or anti-government. It was pro-Jesus, pro what he has done, pro-church. It's the allegiance to Christ which came into focus over these past number of months. And I'm so thankful that as the, the world and those who are interested to take a closer look at the message coming out from this pulpit and coming from among you at Grace Life Church, that message has been gospel-saturated and has led to the salvation of souls. And I rejoice in that. He is worthy. He's Lord above all lords and he's name above all names. And that is what Paul desired. Now let me show you the, the final thing here. If you notice at the end of verse number four, he came 
as a weak man, avoiding the world's method, avoiding the world's message, preaching in accordance with God's method and God's message. And he says there at the end of verse four, in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul says, my message in itself is not foolish. It's God's wisdom that I in myself am not weak. I am weak, but I am strong and powerful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, so that in verse number five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, I avoided the world's method. I avoided the world's message and I proclaimed according to God's method. I, I proclaimed God's message so that your faith would be in the power of God and not the wisdom of the world. Now he talks about here a demonstration of the spirit and a power. What is he talking about? The power of God and the demonstration of the spirit that he's speaking of here is, is not signs and wonders. He already said in the first chapter, the Jews seek after signs. It's like, he's not going that way. But the power he's talking about here is through the simplicity of heralding the gospel about who Jesus is and what he has done. It has resulted in the conversion of souls. The greatest miracle happening today, regeneration, when God's spirit enters a heart, takes a heart of stone and takes that out and puts in a heart of flesh, a heart that then loves God, believes upon him, follows after him. That is a miracle. You can't change your heart. But God is doing that through the preaching of his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, taking sinners and making them saints by his lavish grace and mercy. And Paul says, I've rejected the world's ways and I've done it God's way because I want to see the power of the Spirit among you. And that's, that's taken place in these past number of months. It wasn't the power of James Coates or Jacob Spence or Tim Stevens. It has been the power of God, the simplicity of preaching that we've seen souls encouraged and transformed and saved. We've seen God's power at work. We've seen God's Spirit at work. And Paul says, I yearn to see that. So I, I reject the world's ways because I want to see that. And he says, I want to see that your faith is rooted not in the wisdom of men, not in the strength of men, not in leaders, not in the government, not in your pastors, but I want your faith to rest in the power of God and the proclamation of Christ. What a motivation to see God at work, to do it his way, according to his message, and to see God work, to see him build his church. That is my prayer at this time. Lord, build your church just as you have promised. And he does it through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Notoriety has come not because of your strength or your skill or your wisdom, but because of God's power on display through the faithful preaching of the gospel through faithful preaching of the testimony of God. That's how Christ built his church. That's how we see the spirit at work in power. This church will continue, I believe, to be a beacon for decades and generations to come. If you stay faithful, according to God's message, according to God's method, in letting Christ and him crucified be known and be the center of all that we do.
I don't believe we've seen the full blessing of what Paul talks about here, this demonstration of the spirit and, the, and of power. Oh, you've been, you've been blessed in manifold ways in these recent months. But Paul didn't see the full blessing of his preaching, of his faithfulness. And I don't think we'll ever see a, a full understanding until glory of what faithful preaching according to God's method and God's message, what that will do in the power of God's hands according to his spirit. And so I hope that encourages you today. Oftentimes our, our focus is on the, the cost of obedience. The cost of obedience. What is this gonna cost me? Will this cost me promotion, my job, my schooling? Will this cost me my family? Will this cost me fines and imprisonments? What is this going to cost me? We focus on the cost. What Paul says here, he avoids the world's message and method and he, he uses God's message and method because he wants to see the spirit at work. He wants to see God's blessing outpoured. He wants to see the church built and strengthened. The blessing of faithfulness. And so may this motivate us as we reject the world's method and message. So we employ God's method and message as we center on Christ and him crucified, may this motivate us that we might see his power and his spirit at work among us. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for your word that we can look at together. God, may we all make the determination to have Christ and him crucified, the gospel, the lordship of Christ, all of who he is, the totality of Christ and and what that means for our lives, oh God, may that be the blood pumping through our veins. May that be the default in our mind. Oh God, may you give James and Jacob and the other elders here, God, such courage and faithfulness in these coming years and decades to not be tempted by the ways of the world and the message of the world, but to stay faithful to your word. I thank you that they've done that, they've shown that. God, continue to show us your power. May our faith rest in you and in your power and in your wisdom and not the things of this world. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.